Do you remember as a child that sense of anticipation you had in the lead up to Christmas? Or maybe you get the joy of experiencing that with the children in your life right now. Mid-November would roll around and you'd start making decorations at school, putting together your wish list for Santa, watching Christmas movies, learning carols for a school assembly or church service. And as it got closer and closer to Christmas, your excitement would rise and rise. And going to bed on Christmas Eve, Gosh, I still remember that adrenaline. I could hardly sleep because I was so excited waiting for the next morning. And the number of Christmases as well that I wanted a puppy like this picture. <laughs> Never happened, sadly. Even now as adults or kids adjacent, as Colin calls us, there's a sense of building anticipation in the lead up to Christmas. We all know that feeling of expectation, of waiting, it can be an exciting and wonderful thing, like Christmas can sometimes be, or, or like waiting for a longed-for holiday. But then again, maybe you're more familiar with a negative context for waiting. Waiting for a pregnancy, for a baby that still hasn't come. Waiting for some better test results, or relief from chronic pain waiting for a glimpse of hope in the midst of depression. Often when we're waiting for life to get better or expectations to be met, it can feel like God has abandoned us, like we're just waiting for God to show up. Waiting can be joyful, but it can also be hard. And that's what this time of Advent is all about. Advent, the, the four Sundays in the lead up to Christmas, is a time in the Christian calendar which is all about waiting. Yes, we're waiting for Christmas Day, but there's more to it than that, which I'll come back to uh, later on. And this experience of waiting is something that God's people throughout history have been very familiar with. Our Old Testament reading from Ezekiel, chapter 43, recounts a vision that Ezekiel the prophet had while he was in exile in Babylon, away from the promised land of Israel. And what he saw in that vision looked forward to a huge event that all of God's faithful people were waiting for. Now, God had initiated a relationship with Israel, and part of this relationship involved the construction of a temple, a building where, where God promised to live among his people. And associated with the temple was the concept of God's glory. God's glory is his goodness and awesomeness. Uh, it's the manifestation of who God is, his very essence, his very godness. God's glory is spoken about a lot in the Bible. And while God's glory fills the earth, in the Old Testament, it dwelled in a special way in the temple in Jerusalem. But despite God's blessing of Israel with his presence with the temple, uh, his people persistently rebelled against him. They worshipped pagan gods and created a society which was corrupt, immoral and violent. And so God sent them into exile, away from the temple. 
And earlier in the book of Ezekiel, in chapter 10, the prophet had a vision of God's glory leaving the temple. It's hard to overstate how catastrophic this was for the Jewish people. The temple in Jerusalem, without God's glory in it, was like a car without an engine, or more devastatingly, like a dead body without any life in it. The temple, and and therefore Israel, got its whole purpose and specialness from God's glory dwelling there. And so when God's glory left the temple, for the Jewish people, it felt like God had abandoned them. But then Ezekiel has another vision. In verse 43, and we read these words from the prophet, then the man, uh, who is a heavenly messenger in the vision, brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. In chapter 10, God's glory had departed from the temple to the east, but now God returns in his glory through the eastern gate, and his glory fills the temple. And he makes a promise to Israel through Ezekiel in verse 7, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. This is it. This is the moment that faithful Israelites had been waiting for. And now they had a picture of how it would be and a promise from God that his glory would certainly return to the temple. Not yet. This is just the vision. It hasn't happened yet. Not while Ezekiel and his contemporaries were still in exile, but soon. God had promised that he would show up. They just had to wait. And that's where we arrive at in Luke chapter 2, our passage for today. Faithful Israelites were still waiting for God to show up, longing for God's glory to return to his temple. As these faithful Israelites read the scriptures, celebrated the Sabbath each week and worshipped at the temple, they were looking expectantly to the horizon, waiting for God to return to his people. At the beginning of our passage in Luke chapter 2, verse 22, we already know the two parents, Mary and Joseph, from earlier in the story of Luke's gospel, and I'm sure you have heard of Mary and Joseph. And we know that they are faithful Israelites. Uh, We know this because Mary and Joseph are taking their son Jesus to the temple. And they're doing that for two reasons. Firstly, for the purification rites required by the law of Moses in Leviticus chapter 12, uh, which includes the sacrifice of the two doves or pigeons. And secondly, they were taking Jesus to the temple to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord, with a quote there from Exodus, uh, sorry, yeah, Exodus 13. So these young people, Mary and Joseph, are shown to be faithful to God's law, concerned about worshipping God and showing him their proper devotion. We know that it's been 40 days since Mary gave birth, uh, since this was a time when when a mother went to be purified at the temple. And as these brand new parents arrive in the temple with their six-week-old baby, we meet the other characters in the story who welcome Jesus to the temple. Not a priest, 
not a high-ranking official or community leader, as we might expect for the reception of Jesus, God's own son. Instead, Jesus is received by people who are unknown anywhere in the Bible, two faithful elder Israelites, Simeon and Anna. Since the time of Ezekiel and the other prophets, the Jews had been waiting centuries for the coming of God's Messiah, God's Messiah, and the Sessions people. Their hopes still appeared, which had to illusion the fresh Many Jews joined Christ to oppose their Roman occupiers, while others had ended up compromising with the enemy. Still others had formed isolated communities in the desert, and many had just re resigned themselves to a life surviving under Roman oppression. They'd waited for God long enough, and they'd finally just given up hope. But there were still faithful Israelites, like Mary and Joseph, and like Simeon and Anna. And just like faithful Israelites throughout history, they were waiting in, in expectation, trusting in God, who had promised to return. So verse 25 tells us about Simeon, first of all. Uh, now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So Simeon is introduced as a man of upstanding character, guided by the Holy Spirit and waiting faithfully for the coming of the Lord's Messiah, the one who would bring consolation and hope to Israel. And moved by God's Spirit, he recognises Jesus for who he is. And his first response of faith is not to speak, but to touch. He gently takes the baby Jesus in his arms, receiving God's promise, embracing the salvation he has longed for. And then overcome by his joy, Simeon prays and prophesies. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Simeon says that he's now ready to die, now that he has seen the dawn of God's salvation for the whole world. This isn't a salvation that's coming secretly or under the radar. God is acting in the sight of all nations. And while Israel will be the recipients of God's salvation, uh, this isn't the end of God's ambitions. God's heart throughout Old Testament law and prophecy had always been to extend his salvation to the Gentiles, to everyone from every country on earth. And then Simeon turns to Mary, Jesus' mother, and speaks to her personally. He says to Mary, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce, uh, will pierce your own soul too. Although Simeon sees that Jesus is the bringer of God's salvation, light and glory, he knows that Jesus will also bring opposition 
and offence. The religious and political leaders were often offended by Jesus. And in the end, the opposition against God's son led to his arrest and crucifixion. Simon, Simeon prophesies that Mary will feel the horrific pain of seeing her son suffer and die. Not just because of the plans of evil men, but also because of Mary's sin and to wash away the sin of the world. Well, with Simeon's words still ringing in their ears, Jesus and his parents are then welcomed by Anna. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. And coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to, or literally all who were waiting for, the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna is described with even more praise than Simeon, not just as a female counterpoint to the male norm, but as her own unique person. In her God-appointed role as a prophet, she follows in the footsteps of Ezekiel, as well as her spiritual foremothers, Miriam, Deborah, and Huldah, who are named as prophets in the Old Testament. Anna is also introduced with a short genealogy as the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. So she has a heritage and a place in the community of Israel. And we get a glimpse of her character and commitment when we find out that she was married for a short time, had become a widow, probably around about 20 years old, and presumably since then had lived in or near the temple, worshipping God constantly with prayer and fasting. Anna is a woman with a divinely appointed role an impressive lineage, lineage and a commendable life. And she also is waiting for God's salvation. Just as Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel, Anna was waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. These two, these two elders, faithful followers of God, recognised Jesus for who he was, the one they'd been waiting for, who was bringing God's salvation to the world. The glory of God returning to his temple to live among his people. If you think about it, it's, it's a shocking contrast. The glory of God, visible and tangible in a vulnerable baby. I was talking to a friend about this passage last week and we were chatting about how Jesus being brought to the temple as a baby was the fulfilment of God's glory returning to the temple in Ezekiel. I'm a great conversation partner, obviously. I speak about very exciting things. But my friend's response was, God is such a gangster. Now, my friend spends a lot of time with teenagers, so this is a positive thing in this context. But God is such a gangster. This is a totally unexpected way for God's glory to finally return to his temple. It's a bit subversive, it's a bit cheeky. A shocking contrast, the God of the universe and a vulnerable baby. 
Maybe that's why in verse 33, Mary and Joseph marveled at what was said about Jesus. Sure, they'd been told by prophecies and angels that Jesus was God's son. He was miraculously conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit and destined to save the world. But they're still surprised when they hear the words of Simeon and Anna. Perhaps because Mary and Joseph were feeding Jesus, burping Jesus, cleaning up Jesus' poo explosions. Perhaps it was easy for them to underestimate God's salvation, to lose sight of the full glorious picture. After all, they needed to meet Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, just like anyone else. Underestimating God's salvation can be our challenge as well, especially around Christmas time. As we sing about Jesus lying in a manger, as we see cutesy nativity scenes full of baby sheep and chubby angels, it can be easy to lose sight of the full glorious picture. Jesus was born as a baby, but he's also the Lord and judge of the world. Do you see Jesus as just a little baby, surrounded by farm animals? Or do you see him as your Lord and Saviour, as fully God and fully human, a person who is unexpected, offensive, kind and beautiful like no one else? Do you want to know this person? Just like Simeon, when we reach out in faith, Jesus offers us himself and is ready to embrace us, whether it's the first time we've reached out or the hundredth time. We can also underestimate God's salvation when we're going through times of waiting. In the darkness of illness, of depression, of unfulfilled expectations and longings, when we're waiting for God to act, to give us an answer, it can be easy to underestimate him, to assume that he won't come through for us. And so as we wait, we might resign ourselves to the situation. Sure, we'll still go through the motions of living a religious life, but deep down we feel resentful towards God. We feel like he's abandoned us. Or maybe as we wait for God, we slide into compromise with the world. Instead of loving God before anything else, we gradually fixate on other priorities, climbing the career ladder, making and spending money, being loved and needed by our family and friends. Or maybe as we're waiting, we take matters into our own hands. We make ourselves busy, accomplishing tasks and working hard. Since God hasn't done anything, we'll just have to do it ourselves. When we're waiting for God, it can be so easy to become resigned, to make compromises, to take matters into our own hands. But can I encourage you as you wait in hardship and disappointment, look to the example of Simeon and Anna. Have an attitude of waiting like these faithful Israelites who waited expectantly their whole lives for God to show up. And they saw him. They saw the dawn of God's salvation in Jesus. 
And as we wait for God to show up, we have more hope than Simeon and Anna. We know that Jesus has already come and he's with us now by his spirit. Christmas is a celebration of what God has done in history through the birth, death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And it's a celebration of the goodness we can experience when we reach out to him. And as we look to the horizon for Jesus to come again, we can wait with certainty. That's what we're waiting for during Advent, the second coming of our Lord Jesus. Yes, we might wait now with tears and with pain, but this time of Advent reminds us that we're waiting for the one who will solve every problem, heal every trauma, end every war. A person whose first arrival was announced over 2,000 years ago by a faithful man called Simeon and a faithful prophet called Anna. And Jesus will come again to bring us everlasting salvation and joy. So let's stand and sing now our next hymn, Rejoice, Rejoice, Emmanuel, God with us has come. <laughs> 